This is Guns and Butter. goes back again to Brian Michael Jenkins' quote that terrorism is theater. It's, it's really meant for the people watching. And so if we see the film, what most people really remember is not how the buildings fell in a very inexplicable way. They, they remember the fireballs. They remember these pyrotechnic effects occurring on 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19... Part 4. Kevin Ryan was site manager for a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. As a manager at Underwriters, he began in 2003 to question the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by UL and the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, and UL's work to ensure the fire resistance of the buildings. Ryan lost his position at UL for making his questions public. He was a founding member of the 9-11 Working Group of Bloomington and Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. He now serves as co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject of 9-11. His latest book is Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects. Today we discuss Brian Michael Jenkins, L. Paul Bremer, Terrorist Propaganda, Wirt Walker, Kuwait American Corporation, or KUAM, Barry McDaniel, and Stratisek. Kevin Ryan, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. In your chapter, Bremer, Jenkins, and Terrorist Propaganda, you begin with the example of the Cold War, which was driven by threats to national security and hyped by the media. You draw a parallel with the same tactics used in driving the war on terror. How was the communist threat sold to the public, and who was behind this? Well, the communist threat, or the Soviet threat, uh, was also a threat of uh, terrorism. Uh, the people in charge in, in the United States were um, telling us that the Soviets were committing acts of terrorism, and uh, and they were also, of course, a military threat. And in both cases, historically, uh, in hindsight, it appears that uh, these claims were fabricated and they were hyped for political and financial gains. And they were done uh, so through specific reports. Um, there's a man named Paul Nietzsche, who was a well-known uh, government leader back in the 50s and 60s, who was responsible for the three primary reports that hyped the Soviet threat. The first of them was a report called NSC-68 that uh, was focused on changing the policies of the Truman administration. And then uh, uh, Nietzsche came up with another report in, in 1957 called the Gaither Report that uh, told us that the U.S. was falling behind critically uh, in the uh, area of nuclear weaponry, that the Soviets were gaining a big advantage. And uh, Nietzsche all along was uh, operating um, part of what was called the Office Policy Coordination, which was the CIA's early uh, covert operations group. And he was also the founder of this Committee on the Present Danger, which was a political action group uh, in the 50s that promoted these Cold War uh, hawkish policies. 
And that was picked up later, the Committee on the Present Danger, by uh, Donald Rumsfeld in the 70s. Um, so it continued on in different iterations. But this Paul Nietzsche guy, uh, he was the Secretary of Navy in the in the 60s, and uh, actually uh, the record shows that he was um, covering up documents that would have revealed that the Gulf of Tonkin incident uh, in 1964 was actually a fabrication. Um, so he's got a lot of links to this this policy of hyping the Soviet threat and uh, um, claims of terrorism or attacks against the United States. And so I go in the book into uh, showing how Nietzsche was a mentor uh, for certain people like Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz. And uh, he also worked closely with these two characters who are the who are the uh, topic of this chapter, Brian Michael Jenkins and Paul Bremer. What was Team B? Well, Team B was um, an effort by people uh, in the government to um, second-guess the CIA. You know, back in the in the 70s, the CIA was telling us that the Soviets were not really a uh, big threat at all. And uh, Team B was initiated through uh, actions of President Ford's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. And uh, um, coincidentally, the person who led that was a signatory of the Operations Northwoods document, the uh, plan to uh, to cause terrorism and blame it on Cuba. Um, so one of the signatories of that was behind this Team B effort as well. But it was uh, ultimately approved by George H.W. Bush. It was... Uh, a group of people, neocons, who uh, who second-guessed the CIA data and said, despite the CIA findings, that the Soviets really were a great threat to us in the United States. And so they perpetuated this false myth that the Soviet Union, which was basically going bankrupt in the late 70s and the 80s, uh, was still this major threat. And the outcome of it was to... Uh, continue to fund the military-industrial complex at high levels. So Team B was um, um, really a fraudulent effort on the part of neocons connected to the military-industrial complex. And what is Circle Panay? Circle Panay is is a foreign, uh, actually a European propaganda group um, that uh, not only propagandized on behalf of um, certain right-wing uh, figures, but they also apparently funded uh, terrorist activities, and they were connected uh, to some extent to the uh, to the Cold War uh, terrorism that was known as Operation Gladio. You may have heard of Operation Gladio; it is one in which these stay-behind armies after World War II were developed into implements of terrorism in order to promote and exacerbate the uh, the perception of a terrorist threat. And uh, that uh, Operation Gladio um, program was run really out of, out of Brussels through NATO in participation with the CIA. And Circle Panay was this kind of... Um, uh, propaganda group that uh, provided covert funding and black propaganda, and they had uh, connections to the private intelligence network that uh, the United States was part of. They were really composed of these kind of international uh, uh, group of rogue uh, agents on the right wing. So Circle Panay is very interesting when we talk about terrorism because they appear to have been a group that promoted terrorism 
and they hooked up with uh, people in the United States through the private network, and and they had these institutes for the study of conflict, which were basically propaganda publication outfits that would, much like uh, mainstream sort of um, right-wing media today, will exacerbate or hype the threat of terrorism. So there's a lot of connections between them and the Safari Club as well, and I go into that in the book. Um, they just promoted this threat of terrorism, but at some point it became clear to the people of the world that the Soviet threat was total hype. And for that reason, uh, there needed to be a change, and the Soviet threat needed to be transformed into a different kind of threat. And what these folks came up with was this this stateless um, uh, terrorism through... Uh, groups like uh, Al-Qaeda, of course, and uh, they hyped it into this idea of, it's basically an oxymoron, but Islamic terrorism, um, because the military-industrial complex really needed to be able to get into the Middle East in certain areas, in Eurasia. And so this Soviet threat was transformed into this Islamic terrorist threat. And people that were involved with making that transformation occur included Brian Michael Jenkins and L. Paul Bremer. Exactly. You write that these two men, Brian Michael Jenkins and L. Paul Bremer, with the help of Paul Nietzsche that you've mentioned and others, transformed the Soviet threat into a threat of international terrorism and then into Islamic terrorism, like you've just said. Let's begin with Brian Michael Jenkins. What do we know about him? Well, Jenkins is... is like Bremer, so interesting because he not only was this uh, primary leader in, in telling us about the threat of terrorism and warning us about terrorism over a long period of time, but he ended up being closely connected to aviation security and the World Trade Center in the years just before 9-11. And, and what I mean by that is Brian Michael Jenkins became the deputy chairman of a company called Kroll Associates. And Kroll was hired to design the security system for the World Trade Center. And they did that in partnership with another company that we may talk about here in a few minutes that's called Stratisec. But uh, Jenkins was known throughout his career as a special operations soldier and he was uh, deployed to various hotspots around Central America and Vietnam. And um, it appears that he was, at least he was accused of, uh, running what is called a, a war of terror in Central America. Uh, we know he was hired as a psychological operations character in Vietnam. That's what he did. He even admits this. But in the 80s, he was working with the Reagan administration very closely, and William Casey, who was the director of the CIA, and he was meeting with them constantly. But he was also accused of of conducting a war of terror in Central America and places like Guatemala and so forth. So um, we know that a war of terror did occur under the Reagan administration in El Salvador and uh, in Honduras and so forth, and Nicaragua was a big target. And it appears that Brian Michael Jenkins was a, a leader of this sort of activity in Central and South America. So uh, that 
coupled with the fact that he was an aviation security expert in the late 90s. He designed the World Trade Center security system, um, including uh, considering the exact events that occurred on 9-11, commercial airliner impacts into the World Trade Center. He was the man who, uh, according to uh, people at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, he was the guy who was in charge of evaluating those scenarios so this guy who, uh, you know, was a right-wing uh, terrorist specialist, a special operations soldier, um, designed this system. And uh, the more you learn about Brian Michael Jenkins, really the more it becomes clear that he needs to be investigated thoroughly for his possible role. And in your book, you uh, quote Brian Michael Jenkins as having said, Terrorism is aimed at the people watching, not at the actual victims. And success demands the creation of an atmosphere of fear and the seeming omnipresence of the internal security apparatus. Yeah. Well, Brian uh, Jenkins was obviously this leading terrorist expert. And this goes back to the early 70s. He was hired by Nixon to start a terrorism policy group in the Nixon administration. He was hired by Rand to start the first terrorism database. He actually is known now as a Rand consultant, a senior advisor to the Rand Corporation. So over the years, going back to the early 70s, he was the leader of the folks who were describing the threat of terrorism. But as you said, early on, uh, you look at his papers, he made really startling comments about how the government actually can be involved in terrorism. And that, uh, as you said, the terrorism is aimed at the people watching. And that surely seems to be the case with 9-11, that the people watching on that day appeared to be the real victims in many ways, that uh, there was psychological trauma that was intended to be uh, incurred on us as the American public, and that those kinds of things are exactly what Jenkins was describing over the years in his papers for the Rand Corporation. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 4. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What can you tell us about a parallel CIA? Well, the parallel CIA is sometimes also called the CIA within the CIA, and this goes back to the uh, the efforts of Ted Shackley and uh, the Safari Club, and. Uh, um, I believe the Bank of Credit Commerce International, as far as the funding network for this, uh, basically an off-the-books CIA in which uh, originally disgruntled CIA operatives that Jimmy Carter had fired um, were hired through um, off-the-books funding. The BCCI operation is a a prime candidate for that. Uh, Hired and funded to conduct operations off the books because basically they were illegal in terms of what the United States would allow. The United States government would no longer allow these things, so they went off the books. And not only that, but certain countries like Saudi Arabia and the United States and Iran and uh, Egypt would uh, essentially 
conduct operations for each other. So um, they would serve as proxies for each other in order to conduct certain off-the-books operations. And that's interesting given what we know about the uh, alleged 9-11 hijackers. You know, Mohammed Atta was an Egyptian. He definitely seemed to operate much like an intelligence operative. And the Saudis, at least the Saudi government, uh, have their fingerprints on the uh, attacks of 9-11, and that's obvious to most people who've looked into it. What can you tell us about the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism in in, uh, 1979, which established the ideological foundations for the war on terror? Yeah, this was a conference attended by George H.W. Bush and Benjamin Netanyahu, certain people who appeared to want to... um, utilize terrorism for political purposes. That's what it appears to be. And uh, as author Nafiz Ahmed has said, it really was, in his view, the groundwork laid for the war on terror. It established the ideological foundations for it. And uh, one of the people who was invited to that was a close associate of Brian Michael Jenkins. This was an Englishman named Paul Wilkinson, and he was a major terrorism advisor to uh, Margaret Thatcher in the same way that Brian Michael Jenkins was a major uh, uh, terrorism advisor to the Reagan administration. And so over the years, um, Wilkinson showed up along with Jenkins in scenarios in which they were they were telling us that this Islamic terrorism was was growing, and it was a huge threat, you know, and that aviation was at risk. Uh, they wrote a book together on uh, terrorism and aviation. And so it does appear that this Jerusalem conference was a uh, summit meeting of people from around the world um, who really seemed to want to co-op terrorism or the concept of terrorism for political purposes. What was the Hart-Rudman Commission and other commissions like it? Well, that's what I go through in the book is that the means by which the Soviet threat was converted into a uh, threat of international terrorism, and then again into a threat of Islamic terrorism, was by um, by use of these commissions. These government commissions would would come together, and you know all these people would humph and haw, and they'd nod their heads, and they'd make a report. And they'd tell us, uh, now, as the experts of having looked at this, these are the things that we need to look out for. We need to look out for Muslims in these specific countries, you know, Iraq and Iran and Libya. These are the people who are out to get us, and they're going to do it in these specific kinds of ways. So the Hart-Rudman Commission was one of those commissions. It said uh, America will become increasingly vulnerable to hostile attack on our homeland, and our military superiority will not help us. And they told us that space would become critical and that we really needed to create a new Homeland Security Agency. Now, uh, just to be clear, this this report came out in January 2001, uh, eight months before 9-11. These people were saying that these things would happen just in the way that they did on 9-11. And uh, the interesting thing was Jenkins was part of this heart. Rudman Commission, as well as Bremer, but they were both part of another commission led by Bremer that was known as the Bremer Commission and did the same sort of thing. 
It was technically called the National Commission on Terrorism. And they interviewed a whole bunch of people that um, just coincidentally were the people that um, failed to protect us on 9-11, including the leaders of the, of the CIA and the FBI and, and uh, certain people that uh, really should be investigated for the crimes rather than um, listened to as far as what the threats were most at risk for. And what can you tell us about L. Paul Bremer? Now, you've already mentioned him in relationship to these uh, commissions. You say in your book that he was the most important figure in the U.S. assessment of terrorism prior to 9-11. I guess you've you've just spoken about that. Yeah, I have. He had, like Jenkins, a long history of being a terrorism specialist in the United States. People know Bremer most well for being the occupation governor of Iraq after the Bush administration had made it Iraq. What they don't know is this leading international terrorism expert in the United States was at the World Trade Center on 9-11. He actually had an office just above the South Tower impact zone. Now, he was not killed. He not only was not killed that morning, but he ended up going on the national television networks and explaining to us what actually happened before anybody really knew what happened. He said that Iraq and Iran were involved. He said that Osama bin Laden was behind it and that we needed to respond with the most severe military uh, reaction possible. And this was the day of 9-11. So this guy who told us about the threat all along, essentially described and and prepared us for it, was there. He had an office in that building. He was an executive for a company called Marson McLennan, which occupied the exact eight floors out of 110 in the North Tower that were impacted. Um, So there's just way too many coincidences with regard to Bremer. Uh, Another one that people have noticed is that he was a director for a company um, that had patented a thermite demolition device a few years before 9-11. So, you know, the evidence just builds and builds for Bremer. Uh, he also has strong connections to BCCI in his time as a managing director for Kissinger Associates. And so uh, as I go into all this in the book, I try to make it clear that if we want to find out what happened on 9-11 and really find out about the risk of terrorism, we should investigate people like Brian Michael Jenkins and Paul Bremer. Now, you also say that Marsha McLennan purchased Kroll. What's the significance of that? Well, that's interesting. It's a good question, but Kroll Associates, as I said, was the company that had designed the security systems for the World Trade Center. And so just a couple of years after 9-11, Marson McLennan, which was the impact zone company, and it's just really coincidental that they were uh, for several reasons, um, they purchased Kroll Associates. So uh, um, it is suggested by some that they would have done that so that they could keep all of the all of the dirty laundry together in one uh, company. And, you know, the reason that Marshall McLennan is highly suspect is not just that they occupied these exact floors with the planes impacted, but these were the exact eight floors out of 110 that had just been updated for fireproofing just before 9-11. And that fireproofing upgrade would have exposed the uh, steel structure 
in a way that would have allowed uh, the implementation of a demolition uh, scenario. So uh, Marshall McLennan is very coincidental in where they uh, were located and what happened in that building. And uh, Bremer, of course, is also, given that he basically predicted what happened and then showed up there and told us what uh, we were supposed to know. In your chapter, Wirt Walker and Ku Am, you begin with a Stratisec stock purchase before 9-11. What about this? Well, um, you know, Wirt Walker is an executive for Stratisec, and uh, there are a lot of reasons to investigate him, one of them being that the Securities and Exchange Commission flagged certain uh, stock trades uh, just after 9-11 as potential 9-11 insider trading. And uh, years later, um, the uh, 9-11 Commission released some of the documents related to this flagging and the idea of an investigation that, that occurred around those, those alerts. Um, when you look at that documentation, um, you see that one of the people who were involved was Wirt Walker, uh, it's undeniable from the description, although they have redacted his name and the name of his wife, you can tell from the fact that he was a director of the company, Stratisec, where the stock trade occurred. Uh, he was also a director and a manager for a foreign investment company based in Kuwait in Washington. And of course, that, that he was. He was a managing director for Coam Corporation. And so it's clear that he was a suspect. Now, the the FBI and the Nylum Commission never investigated him. Uh, They never even interviewed him or his wife. They simply said that they had come to the conclusion without interviewing them that they were in no way connected to al-Qaeda. Now, that... Uh, turns out is is like much of what the 9/11 commission said not true um that uh walker was connected to several people who were connected to al-qaeda and that includes one of the directors of uh the company Stratisec Coam's uh, child company the World Trade Center security company Stratisec had a director uh, whose uh, business partner said that he could contact Osama bin Laden and offered that opportunity on several occasions after 9-11. So uh, Walker was much more suspicious, uh, not only with regard to being the uh, CEO of Stratisec and managing director of this Coam Corporation, but you know, there's a whole litany of reasons I've got in the book of why he should really be investigated. Um, from the early 80s, it's clear that uh, Coam that was linked to BCCI, again, the terrorist financing network, through several of its directors. Um, Walker uh, led a life with respect to his business in Kuwait that ran parallel to several other men who were known to be CIA operatives, including the leader of the private network, Ted Shackley, who did many of the exact same things that Walker did. Uh, Kawam actually owned Stratisec and several other companies that all went bankrupt right after 9-11. And there's reasons to believe, as I go into in the book, that these companies were likely to be front companies for covert operations, including, as I said, Stratisec. Walker had these deep pockets. He always had money, despite the fact that his businesses did poorly. Um, 
after the Kuwaitis pulled out um, around the time just before 9-11, uh, the Kuwaitis pulled out of funding Stratisic. Um, that company was funded by others who were convicted of conspiracy. So this isn't really a conspiracy theory so much as when the government convicts someone in conspiracy, and they happen to be the major stockholders of this company, Stratisec, I think it's reasonable for the rest of us to wonder if Stratisec was also involved in some kind of conspiracy. Um, and that's the fact. Um, the book goes on to say there are just some highly coincidental, coincidental things regarding the aviation companies that Walker ran. He ran these companies in Oklahoma, and as we discussed before, the alleged hijackers showed up at the airports where his companies were run. And not only that, but uh, the companies were located in offices that are now occupied by Zacharias Masawi's flight trainer. So uh, there's just an incredible number of coincidences. And as I said, with the insider trading, it's more than coincidences. There is evidence that Work Walker should be a strong suspect, should actually be brought up on charges today. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, Another 19, Part 4. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And you've been talking about the Kuam Corporation, which is the Kuwait American Corporation, right? That's right. Kuwam is the Kuwait American Corporation, and uh, it was started back in 1982 um, by Walker and by a young man who had just turned 21, Michelle Al-Sabah, and this was a Kuwaiti royal. And the, uh, Michelle Al-Sabah had lived with Walker and his family in the mid-70s when Sabah was just a boy. Um, so Walker clearly had strong connections to the Kuwaiti royal family. And uh, Sabah has other strong connections to other um, serious crimes against the United States or against the democracy in the United States, one of them being the lies that were told to start the first Gulf War. People probably remember of those lies. One of them had to do with a 15-year-old girl named Naira, and she was a member of the Kuwaiti royal family who lied uh, under the coaching of a company called Hill and Knowlton about Iraqi soldiers taking babies from incubators and leaving them on the cold floor to die. That was all a lie. It's consistently admitted today that Naira was coached to tell lies. Well, Naira was also the first cousin of Michelle Al-Sabah, who was the owner of Kuwam Corporation and the young partner of Wirt Walker. Now, you've mentioned similarities between Wirt Walker and Ted Shackley. How does Shackley figure in this? Well, the reason I do is because there seems to be so many things that they have in connection. Um, Shackley started doing business in Kuwait at the same time as Wirt Walker. Um, he was involved with aviation companies. He was involved in running security companies exactly as, as Wirt Walker was. And um, not only that, but they both had strong connections to the Bush family. And you uh, probably know, if others don't, that this company, Stratisec, that uh, implemented the uh, 
the World Trade Center security system, had on its board Marvin Bush. Uh, Shackley was, of course, very closely related to George H.W. Bush, the father of both Marvin and George W. Um, George H.W. Bush got Shackley started in doing business in Kuwait, and they were uh, actually um, colleagues in the CIA in the 1970s. So um, Shackley has a great number of connections to uh, the Bush family, and so does Walker, who appears to have run a life that was very parallel, very much parallel to uh, Ted Shackley. Barry McDaniel uh, was chief operating officer of Stratisec, the company that held the security contract for the World Trade Center. What is Barry McDaniel's background? Well, um, one of the first things I noticed about Barry McDaniel is that he came to Stratisec from a company called BDM International. And um, we've talked about that before. BDM International is part of this huge conglomerate called the Carlyle Group. So he actually worked as a as a vice president at BDM International for another of the suspects, Frank Carlucci, until 1996. And that's when he took this what would really be an inexplicable career move to go from this company that was getting trillion-dollar contracts in the Middle East to a very small company that was just struggling along, Stratisec, and became its chief operating officer and was working then for Wirt Walker. And uh, so it was, it was really inexplicable that he would have done that, made that career move, unless there's something more to that. And I believe there is. And people uh, who studied 9-11 are aware that the evidence shows that explosives were used to bring down the World Trade Center buildings. And so a lot of people have asked, well, how could that have happened? And we discussed uh, today that uh, there were fireproofing upgrades that allowed for the steel structure to be exposed. But there had to be more to it than that. There had to be specialists in explosives. And that's exactly what Barry McDaniel is. Um, He, before uh, working for Stratisec and before working for BDM International, was the U.S. Army's leader of the Army's Material Command. That is, he was the leader of the distribution centers for military armaments. He distributed and sold things like explosives and missiles and so forth. That's what he did for a long time uh, before joining BDM International. And so he had this expertise in the acquisition and distribution of military ordnance. He had, uh, through Stratisec security contracts, he had unparalleled access to the World Trade Center and Dulles Airport and other related facilities like uh, United Airlines. So Barry McDaniel should be a very strong suspect given his background and his access to these facilities. And when you say that he was in charge of distributing uh, Army Materiel, the head of the Army Materiel Command, that was a a global distribution. It wasn't just national, right? That's exactly right. And not only that, but uh, he was there in that office um, working at a time when the Iran-Contra crimes were going on. And if people remember, the Iran-Contra crimes had to do with Army Materiel, military ordnance, tow missiles, and so forth, being 
sold to Iran when there was a, a congressional ban on that sort of thing. Iran was not to be uh, dealt with. But in any case, the armaments were shipped to, in some cases, to Israel, who then sold them to Iran. And in some cases, they came directly from the U.S. military stocks. And uh, Barry McDaniel would have been the man to approve uh, allowing these armaments to be shipped to Iran. So uh, it appears that, like Frank Carlucci, Barry McDaniel was also involved in the Iran-Contra crimes. You write that uh, BDM International had a contract, actually, to consolidate the U.S. Air Force computer systems and trillions of dollars in contracts with Saudi Arabia. Yes, BDM was just this huge contractor, and, uh, you know, they were involved with, uh, as you said, Air Force uh, systems and uh, defense and national security, and uh, they were getting just these huge contracts in the Middle East. They had uh, over a trillion dollars in work with Saudi Arabia for things like uh, training the Saudi National Guard and um, building the Saudi Air Force. And at this time, McDaniel was uh, the vice president of material distribution and management systems for BDM in the 1990s. Now, the other Carlisle Group subsidiary, there were two of them at the time. So there's the Carlisle Group as like the holding company, and the actual operating companies were BDM and another called Vanell, the Vanell Corporation. That has been referred to many times as a spook outfit, basically uh, an intelligence and covert operations uh, outfit, and definitely a paramilitary company. They basically have propped up the Saudi Arabian uh, monarchy for many years since the 70s. So this Carlisle group uh, definitely had a lot of connections to the Saudi kingdom, and so did their executives uh, like McDaniel. So McDaniel seemed to bring some of that along with him to Stratisek because not long after he started, Stratisek also got a contract in the Saudi Arabian kingdom. Uh, it was a large uh, engineering and construction contract to develop business in Saudi Arabia. But over time, um, Stratisek focused almost entirely on two facilities, the World Trade Center and Dulles Airport, which were critical to the events of 9-11. Now, you mentioned uh, the subsidiary of BDM, uh, Vanell Corporation. Vanell is very important, isn't it? Weren't they bombed in Saudi Arabia? That's right. They were actually, uh, they were the first site that was attacked by al-Qaeda, allegedly. So their site in Saudi Arabia is kind of basically a private mercenary army is what they were, uh, located in Saudi Arabia, and they were bombed. And uh, it was attributed to uh, Islamic terrorism in Saudi Arabia. So it's another interesting coincidence between the Carlisle Group and uh, the events of 9-11. What did Barry McDaniel oversee at the World Trade Center? Um, Barry had access to everything at the World Trade Center. As chief operating officer, he and his parent company, Coam, would have had access, according to experts, to everything at the World Trade Center. They had access to their computer system, and so they would have had total access. 
And the the reasons that these are these are kind of unbelievable contracts is that Coam, of course, was a foreign company, and uh, at the time, this Coam company run by Wirt Walker owned ninety percent of Stratisec, and that it was just unprecedented, you know, that this foreign company would come in and have these sensitive security contracts for Dulles Airport, which was so sensitive, it was right in the middle of Washington, D.C., and it was the primary international airport there, you know, it was serving uh, 50 international airlines and the top 11 commercial airlines in the United States. It's clear that somebody had to pull some strings in order to get Stratisec and Coam these contracts at the World Trade Center and at Dulles. Well, exactly. But you write that Stratisec then went public in 1997. Who became its investors? Yeah, I noticed that some of the investors make a really odd group. Uh, they include more of the Kuwaiti royals, um, a lady named Baria Salim al-Sabah. Uh, she was um, the daughter of a former ruler of Kuwait. She was a major uh, stockholder in Stratisec, and she's the person who came on television in the United States in 1990, uh, along with George H.W. Bush, to plea for American intervention after that uh, invasion that uh, Saddam Hussein conducted. But some of the other uh, stockholders include Arnaud de Borsgrave, who was a journalist, and he actually was editor-at-large of both the Washington Times and the United Press International. So this is a very interesting character to just coincidentally be an investor in Stratisec. Um, another person uh, was uh, apparently, it looks like, a closely connected person to the Shah of Iran. His name is Manusha Riyah. Um, and Riyadh's family had been devoted to the uh, the Shah, the Persian royalty family, since the 1500s, and his wife actually married into the Shah's family. So here we've got um, these Iranians that um, go back to the right-wing dictatorship of the 70s um, who are connected somehow to Stratisek. There's another Iranian uh, who became a director Cameron Hashemi is his name, and he was only, like many people, he was only involved for about the year around 9-11, and we've talked about that a few times. People would just come in, and they'd suddenly appear, and then they'd be gone not long after 9-11. Cameron Hashemi, uh, the Iranian, was, uh, was one of those. I'm speaking with chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show... Another 19, Part 4. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And there's there's just so many of these directors and investors. I mean, the directors are also amazing, not just Barry McDaniel and, and Wirt Walker, but uh, Marvin Bush, as we talked about, who was uh, on the board of directors of Stratisec through 1999 and for six years before that. You know, he was elected to his board position at Stratisec in the Watergate hotel offices that were leased by Saudi Arabia and uh, and Kuwait. So Stratisec actually held their annual meetings in offices leased by Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And people don't quite get that, but this is the World Trade Center security company that implemented 
the overall security system for the World Trade Center, and they held their meetings in in the embassy offices of, of Saudi Arabia. And a lot of this was revealed by a great journalist by the name of Margie Burns uh, in the few years after 9-11. I recommend her work. Who else was on the board of Stratiset? Well, it's interesting that uh, a guy who was the FBI's assistant director in charge of uh, the Criminal Justice Information Systems Division under Louis Free. This guy was a director at Stratisec, Charles W. Archer. Well, what's interesting about that is that he was, in his role at the FBI, he was responsible for uh, the database that uh, that provided uh, information on terrorism. So he's this guy that uh, ran the National Crime Information Center, the authoritative database on terrorism for the FBI, and then you know, he left that to become a director at Stratisec in 1998. Um, I mentioned, not by name, but before, an important person, James Abrahamson, was a director at Stratisec, and he was business partners with a Pakistani man who claimed to be able to contact Osama bin Laden. These people are truly interesting if you dig into some of their history and their connections. Um, another guy was a member of the National Fire Protection Association, and the reason that's interesting is that, again, we, we have these fireproofing upgrades that were going on um, just before 9-11 that exposed all the steel structure, would have allowed for the, um, the placing of explosives in the buildings. Who were Stratisec's clients? Well, their clients uh, in the years just before 9-11 included uh, several military the U.S. Army accounted for about 29% of the company's revenues. So something happened. Um, you know, they had the World Trade Center and the uh, Dulles Airport contracts in 97, 98. And then after those, they started getting also these big military contracts. Like, they must have done something very well uh, to get that kind of attention. And... Uh, I guess some of their directors might have had some influence on that. Um, you know, another thing that people may not know is that uh, Stratisec director Marvin Bush and his brother George W. had three relatives working for companies located in the impact zones of the Twin Towers. Now, that's that's incredible to me. I didn't have any relatives working in, in the World Trade Center complex at all. But George W. Bush, who profited greatly from 9-11, had three relatives working in the impact zones of the Twin Towers, one of them being an executive from Marshall McLennan, uh, Craig Stapleton, who was um, W.'s uh, cousin Dorothy's husband. Another was Jim Pierce, who was W's first cousin, who worked in the impact zone uh, for tenant, uh, the Aon Corporation in the South Tower. There's an interesting story with Jim Pearson that he was supposed to have a meeting in the South Tower that morning, and he rescheduled it for the Millennium Hotel across the street kind of at the last minute. And uh, he survived, although some of the people apparently that were supposed to go to his meeting uh, did not, that apparently they didn't get the notice in time. Uh, the third person from the Bush family was Prescott Bush Jr., who was a, a semi-retired consultant at uh, a company called Johnson & Higgins, uh, Marshall McLennan Company. So those are really another more amazing coincidences that there's so many links to the World Trade Center and the Bush family.
Were the upgrades to the World Trade Center towers inspected? They were not, actually. And uh, I go into the book saying that uh, it was Rudy Giuliani's uh, Department of Buildings that was responsible for inspecting the uh, World Trade Center fireproofing upgrades, but they did not uh, get around to doing that. Um, so, again, that calls into question, um, were people really uh, monitoring these fireproofing upgrades and what was really happening there, given that these were the areas where the planes impacted exactly? And, and this is in both buildings. The fireproofing upgrades were where the planes hit the buildings. So uh, although people may not have noticed that before, there is a diagram available on the web. It was also shown in a film called uh, Loose Change American Coup, and it shows how these floors match up exactly with the areas of impact. What other companies were involved in the new fireproofing work? Well, one of them was a company called Turner Construction, which had uh, links to the Bush family as well. Uh, the uh, owner of Turner Construction lived down the street and was friends with George W. Bush in Dallas. Uh, a smaller company called Phoenix Fireproofing uh, turned up in the Freedom of Information Act documents that uh, revealed some of this. So Turner Construction and Phoenix Fireproofing, we know, were involved, and Turner definitely had connections to the Bush family. And what can you tell us about uh, Stratisec's client, LANL? Well, that's Los Alamos National Laboratories, and so it's one of the U.S. Department of Energy National Laboratories. And so, um, you know, back in 1997 um, and 1996, when Barry McDaniel was was just starting at Stratisec, now they were getting clients like the World Trade Center and Dallas Airport, but also they were working for this national laboratory. And the reason that's interesting is... Um, Los Alamos had a program for the development of nanothermite, which is something that has been found in the World Trade Center dust, which is it's kind of a high-tech form of thermite. Um, and the reason that that's interesting is that that was really cutting-edge technology at the time. And so one of the uh, facilities that Stratisec had access to was developing nanothermite, and the fact that it's been found throughout the World Trade Center dust has not been explained as yet. Were there unusual fire dynamics on the floors of impact? There were, and this is one hypothesis for the use of nanothermite. Now, nanothermite can be made into an explosive, but it's also known, like thermite is, as an incendiary. And what's more important about nanothermite is it can be ignited at a much more manageable temperature, whereas thermite requires temperatures over 1,000 degrees Celsius, solid temperatures, in order to ignite. Um, and that can be done in various ways. Uh, nanothermite requires temperatures of only about 450 degrees Celsius. So it's possible that nanothermite could have been installed as part of the fireproofing upgrades in order to um, kind of uh, allow the exaggeration or improve the intensity of the fires and the fireballs that occurred on the impact uh, from the plane. So kind of increase the effect. And this goes back again to Brian Michael Jenkins' quote that terrorism is theater. It's, it's really meant for the people watching. And so if we see the film, what most people really remember is not how the buildings fell in a very inexplicable way. They, they remember the fireballs. They remember these 
pyrotechnic effects occurring on 9-11. Right, and those effects just shot out from the building very dramatically. Right, exactly. And who were the tenants in the impact zone? Now, you've mentioned Marsh and McLennan. Who were some of the other tenants? Well, I mentioned in the South Tower there was the Aon Corporation, which was a competitor, another massive insurance company that uh, George W. Bush's cousin Jim Pierce worked for. But there was also uh, the interesting company, Baseline Financial, which uh, had just modified the southeast corner of floor 77 where where the plane impacted, the exact point where the plane impacted. Um, and Baseline Financial is interesting because it was run by a man named Joseph Kasputis, who uh, appeared to be running, like Work Walker, a lot of um, shadowy kind of uh, companies that were doing what appeared to be intelligence or covert operative sort of work. Uh, Kasputis also goes back to the Ford administration. He was a you know, unofficial in the Ford administration, as were Rumsfeld and Cheney and a lot of these other people who are mentioned in the book. And what about Ace Elevator? Well, Ace Elevator is of interest because not only were the fireproofing upgrades going on just before 9-11, but in the nine months before 9-11, there was a major elevator uh, upgrade project, and it was managed by this company, Ace Elevator. And so that draws people because it does appear through the photographic evidence and the video evidence that there were explosives placed in the core of the building, which would have been accessible to people doing the elevator upgrade. And the other thing that's very interesting about Ace Elevator is that um, in an unprecedented sort of a way, the elevator mechanics working for Ace Elevator all... um, ran from the scene on 9-11. Now, that's that's unusual because elevator mechanics and building fires are expected to stay and help people escape. But for some reason, before the buildings even began collapsing, these elevator mechanics, um, they just uh, disappeared. And uh, this was well reported in the mainstream media as a as an anomaly that just has not been explained. What was timely alert to? Well, Timely Alert 2 was another highly coincidental exercise going on at Fort Monmouth, and uh, it was scheduled for that morning, and it was basically a response to terrorism, and the explosives unit was readied for that, and the Army Communications Electronics Command was was ready, and they all went into uh, action on that morning because they were all ready for an exercise. Uh, another highly coincidental exercise. So uh, they were there the afternoon of 9-11 and stayed for days to help. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, they they were told to help the Secret Service look for possible explosives in the debris. So uh, that's another corroboration with with Barry Jennings' testimony and the, and the presence of all these explosives uh, units. And finally, what are a few of the reasons that Barry McDaniel and Stratisek should be investigated for 9-11? Well, the most important reason is that explosives were used at the World Trade Center, and, and Stratisek had unparalleled access to the building. Um, and, of course, Dulles Airport, of which there are some interesting coincidences there related to evidence provided. Uh, but McDaniel had expertise in the acquisition and distribution of, of this kind of ordinance, and 
you know, the fact that he had a history going back to the days of when Iran-Contra occurred and would have occurred with his involvement, apparently, uh, lead us to believe that Barry McDaniel is a deep state operative who was brought in for the exact purpose of, um, of coordinating the implementation of explosives and the security issues related to Dulles Airport and possibly United Airlines. Um, all the other connections uh, between the directors and investors of Stratisec are also point to the need to investigate the company. One other thing is that McDaniel, after 9-11, went on to start another company with a very close partner of Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney's old business partner, Bruce Bradley, actually works closely with McDaniel now in a company called LS2. So this, again, leads us to wonder what was up with Barry McDaniel coming in in 1996 and, and running this company, and was he involved in, in placing these explosives? Kevin Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Kevin Ryan. Today's show has been Another 19, Part 4. Kevin Ryan earned a B.S. in chemistry from Indiana University and has worked as a chemistry laboratory manager for many years in Bloomington, Indiana. He is the former site manager for environmental health laboratories in South Bend, Indiana, a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. Kevin Ryan is co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which publishes peer-reviewed research, and a founding member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject of 9-11. Visit journalof911studies.com. That's journal of the numbers 911studies.com. Many of his articles can be found at ultruth.com. That's U-L-T-R-U-T-H. His new book, Another 19, Investigating Legitimate 9-11 Suspects, can be found at another19.com. That's another, the numbers 19.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com or Faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org.